continue to give us insight and wisdom into your word, Lord, that we might understand what you have here for us. And, and Lord, we just pray for, praise you for our church building now, Lord, that we have that. Uh, and we just pray for uh, comfort and peace with within each one of us, Lord, and just give you the praise and the honor and the glory. And, and may it be uh, a building that we serve you and others through it and not make it our God, Lord. And uh, just continue to focus on you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. Now we just, uh, once again, thank you for your word and the truth that is there and uh, for your love, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was studying that 315, Genesis 315. Oh, yes. We're going to finish up with this tonight, but as we were going through it, through the week, she says, uh, this Bible answers to Bible questions from uh, BBI is pretty interesting. I said, really? So the, an the question is, is, I heard that Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of a Redeemer. How is that so? <laughs> now this is Robert, Dr. Robert Nix writing this. Yeah. I thought, I read it six times. It's just like, yeah, it's good. I don't know if all the answers are there for us, but there's definitely some answers. And I have a few things to say when we're done reading it here. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered God's creation. Satan, by means of a serpent, deceived Eve and Adam, sinned against God by eating of the fruit that his wife offered to him. God called Adam and Eve out of their sin and set forth his judgment. Beginning with the serpent, Satan, in verse 14. In verse 15, continues with the injunction against the devil by stating, And I, God, will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, the woman. It, the woman's seed, shall bruise thy head, uh, Satan's head, and thou shalt... Thou, and thou, Satan, shall bruise his, the woman's seed's heel. This verse is actually a judgment on Satan's rebellion against God in leading humanity into sin. It resulted in hostility or enmity between Satan and mankind. Eve, the first woman, is the mother of the human race. Satan would constantly be striving with mankind. The reason is unfolded in the verse while while I am trying not to read what we know today or back in this verse what we know today in, in, in this verse it involves God working against Satan to deal with the now present existence of sin and bringing mankind back into a relationship with him God a relationship like Adam and Eve enjoyed with him before the entrance of sin into creation. The second phrase continues to explain by narrowing its focus to Satan's seed and the woman's seed. A few notes about the woman's seed. Number one, a woman doesn't have seed, for this is, the, uh, this is produced by the man. Number two, the word seed is singular, denoting one particular descendant. The argument becomes what's what Satan's seed 
and the woman seed referred to. I am not personally aware of anyone who argues against the woman seed directly referring to Christ. We know this because we have a completed Bible. Satan's seed, however, has been suggested to be his minions, the unsaved, and the antichrist. I personally think we can see Satan's seed as a general term to denote all who take Satan's side willingly or unwillingly. But the ultimate fulfillment may reside with the antichrist whom Satan will bring forth during the tribulation. The last phrase of this of the, the verse speaks of little victories versus winning the war. The Hebrew language places the most important words first. We tend to do it chronologically, so you will bruise his heel, but it, the seed, or he, will bruise your head. If I absolutely had to choose between taking a gunshot to the foot versus a gunshot to the head, I'll choose the foot every time. <laughs> the headshot is a mortal, life-ending wound, while the wound to the foot can be overcome. This prophecy, it is in the future tense. And that's very important right there. This prophecy is in the future tense. Speaks of the temporary sufferings of the seed that Satan will inflict on him versus the mortal blow that will be that will eventually be dealt to Satan by the seed. When when will this uh, prophecy take place? I believe the climax is the cross, but the conclusion will come at the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. My explanatory loose paraphrase would go something like this. God is creating hostility between Satan and mankind. This exists because he didn't give up, give us up to Satan, but is actively working against Satan to win mankind back to himself. The ultimate source of hostility exists between Satan and the incarnated Christ, who lived and served to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Satan will have a few minor uh, seeming victories, but Christ will raise up to be victorious forever. Another way to explain it would be that this verse explains the conflict between God and Satan, good and evil, over mankind. God wants to redeem us back to himself through his Son, while Satan wants to keep us away from him and his Son. The reason many call it a prophecy of a Redeemer is because it speaks of a time when the seed will be brought forth that will conquer Satan. We can now identify this Redeemer as Jesus Christ. In the way I had it explained to me, and he said, just think about this way. He says, you shoot a deer. You shoot it in the heart. That's a lethal blow. Sometimes they drop dead. Sometimes they go for hundreds of yards before they drop, before they actually die. So, although Satan was mortally wounded at the cross, and that's where it all took place because God defeated sin, death, sin, and Satan on the cross. And that's where that took place, all that took place. And it won't be finished. There are still little battles taking place. 
Satan is mortally wounded, but he hasn't finished yet. But he is going to, when he comes back at the second coming, he is going to finish Satan off. But he's still got the thousand-year reign where he's in prison for a thousand years and let loose. But at that great white throne judgment, he's going away. What's the definition of a minion? Well, it's those little yellow things. I, well, that's the problem. <laughs> Every time that is used, that's all I visualize is those little yellow people with the one eye. And yeah, one. yeah. What is it actually is a minion? I haven't. What's a minion? I don't know. Those little yellow people with one eye. <laughs> Thanks so much for clearing it up. I think fallen angels. I think is what they are. It says, minions are pill-shaped devils born of hate and evil and working to serve the worst villains throughout history. Dependent, follower, or underling. He's one of the boss's minions. One <laughs> highly favored idol is no great charity. Whatever. It, 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 I mean, there's enough information here to know that they're just followers of Satan. And yep. They're evil. Yep. Very evil. They're not cute. No. Are we moving to the Red Book? Yes, we are. Oh. We finished this. We did. Yeah. Finished it last time. Yep. We did? Yeah. Yep. But the only problem that we had to go back through was to finish up on that well, Genesis 3.15. Oh, okay. That's what I was yep. I guess that's yep. what I was thinking we didn't yep. finish. But then, still confused on the, where was it? On Romans 16.20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Is that talking about the final crushing? That, that'll be the... He did crush Satan at the cross. Right. But, like I said, just to think about this, how you can mortally wound a deer right, that's and then go saying. for a long ways. Yeah. It's this time. Is, this is the, the final, or this is when he's going to finally... Because this is talking in the future. Yeah, and that's all future tense. Right, okay. And that's when that's going to happen. Okay. And I think it's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Okay. But yeah, I'm kind of excited to get into this book. Now there's going to be, and maybe you guys already know them, I don't, the definitions that are going to, we've got them, just one of them up there. But uh, well, I think a lot of them, I think we have very light understandings of them. Right. But I think this is going to give us a more in-depth understanding. Yes. We go through and memorize what these definitions, that, what they mean, and then we go through that chapter, and we'll definitely know what, that, what they mean. But what's really neat is how they tie into each other as we go through it. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just daisy-chains it together. I think it's kind of cool. But have you, anybody had a chance to read this at all? Thank you. I read the first page of Dictionary of the Gospel. Yep. Okay. Down uh, the second paragraph. To inform you in a specific way about the good news that affects your eternal destiny. You see the term gospel means good news. The good news published in this book is God's good news to you about an opportunity you have been given to receive eternal life freely. There are many messages of good news in the Bible, but the message of good news for this present age is the good news that God has provided for everyone a free, total, and complete salvation from, from all our sins. 
The book of Romans in the Bible is God's great explanation of how the salvation was accomplished. The simplicity of the gospel is that that 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. However, involved in the death and resurrection was a very precise, strategic, and technical accomplishment of a victory which God has won over sin, over death, and over Satan. Now the good, the good, now the God desi- desires you to know, to understand and appreciate this good news. For the, that reason, the book of Romans uses technical language that, when understood, thrills the heart of every believer. When these technical terms are not understood, it results in confusion. Romans three twenty-one through 28 heralds the good news of our salvation, which with such terms and doctrines as, and these are the terms that we're going to go through, righteousness, imputation, justification, grace, redemption, propitiation, faith, remission, forbearance, reconciliation, sanctification. Well, the last two terms are from other portions of Scripture which shall be included in the study of salvation. Wait, so all these except for the starred ones are in those seven verses of Romans? Yes. Well, no wonder it's so complicated and so much to it. Well, and the thing of it is, is God's not the author of confusion. Right. But here, too, they're directing us on how to rightly divide, I think. I think when you see that, uh, you're separating things where they need to be separated, mm-hmm. and, and it's easier to understand. Now, there's and and there's much confusion amongst Bible students over the question of salvation, and it's because they don't rightly divide. And this is, I think, this is the biggest thing other than Jesus Christ in Scripture. Rightly dividing is the most critical thing that we can do. Now, in your mind, I'm just going to ask these five questions in your mind, see if you can answer them. But by the time we get done with the end of the book, you will know these answers very well. Is a person saved through faith alone? Number two, are works part of salvation? Number three, can a person know for sure he is saved? Number four, what if a person sins again after being saved number five can a person lose his salvation all of these questions can be answered simply just by understanding the meaning of the terms which are listed on the previous page this is why it is our purpose in this book to define these terms at the end of the book we will review these questions and see how easily they are they are answered The 11 terms consisted, con- constitute what is called the gospel. Therefore, we have entitled this book the Dictionary of the Gospel. Another reason for confusion. Before we begin our definitions, I want you to be aware of another reason why there is so much confusion in Christendom. The problem with is that with people read their Bible too superstitiously, thinking that whatever, wherever and they read and whatever they read is what God is saying to them. But that is 
Not so. Confusion begins by not paying attention to who is being addressed in a passage of the Bible and then not believing that when God addresses Israel, he means Israel. There is a portion of the Bible that specifically addresses us, Gentiles and Jews of this age. And I put a little arrow back up and instead of Jews or Gentiles and Jews, I put saved and unsaved. I think mm -hmm. that's what it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the books of Romans through Philemon. Now let's see how knowing this fact clears up much confusion. It is commonly taught that there is only one gospel in the Bible. I'm not speaking of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are sometimes called the four gospels. I'm talking about the proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. Many, in fact, most, believe that all the New Testament preachers, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the 12 apostles, and the apostle Paul preached the same gospel. True or false? False. Thank you. Why? John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, possible because they were teaching two different messages. Oh, before yep. the mystery, I guess. John yep. the Baptist and Jesus Christ and the Twelve, yes. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. The Apostle Paul taught a different message. They taught the gospel of the kingdom, and Paul taught the gospel of the mystery. And even Peter knew that. Yes. Yes. Don't confuse the two. Yep. This is totally unscriptural. The Bible speaks of several Gospels. The Gospel of the Kingdom, the Gospel of the Grace of God, the Gospel of Peace, the Everlasting Gospel, the Gospel of circ the Circumcision, the Gospel of the Uncircumcision. These are not all syn synonymous terms for the Gospel. The Gospel of the Kingdom is what our Lord Jesus Christ preached during his earthly ministry according to Matthew 4 and 23. By comparing this verse with Matthew 4, 17, we know that the gospel of the kingdom is the preaching of the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the kingdom Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray for in Matthew 6, 10, where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as a Lutheran, we prayed the Lord's Prayer every week. So just re repetitious. And I never got that, you know. And then I got to Grace Bible Church and I heard that that prayer was just an example of how we were to pray. Mm -hmm. And then Larry Marks, I forgot how he did it, but he broke it down. And uh, it was really interesting. And, and just like right here. You know, they were to pray uh, in Matthew, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Uh, in so many different Gospels. But just like Gospels, all the different dispensations, there's only one dispensation that's for us today. And there's only one Gospel that's for us today. And... I never understood this for a long time. I always heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? You know, Well, when Christ was on earth preaching, 
He was ready. And when he said the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, it was Christ was ready, God was ready for the, that kingdom of priests. All those promises that were made in the Old Testament scripture, in the prophetic program, for those to come true. But then when you had the, you had the rejection of God the Father, rejection of God the Son, and then the rejection of God the Holy Spirit. After that stoning of Stephen, and that rejection of, of the Holy Spirit, that's when God set Israel as a nation, set them aside. So then, like I've told, said before, now you have the, the Gentile nation that was set aside in Genesis 12, at the beginning of, of Abram, coming on the scene. And then now you have the rejection and the nation of Israel set aside. Well, that's just another point, I think, that God's using to show that people are missing the mark. We're not righteous enough. Our own righteousness is as filthy rags. I think it's Isaiah 64, 6 or something like that. It's in here somewhere that we have it. But uh, it's just like filthy rags. Well, what do you do with filthy rags? You throw them in the trash. That's what our righteousness is like to God. But it's Christ's righteousness and faithfulness that we get put into our account when we accept Christ as our Savior. Okay, the old God promised in the Old Testament to set up a kingdom here on earth through the nation Israel in which Jesus Christ would reign as king. Christ was here. Christ was here and the good news proclaimed was that he was that the kingdom was at hand. In Matthew 10:7 we find this to to be the same gospel the twelve apostles were sent to preach. Also, Matthew 10, 5, and 6, we learn that this gospel was good news for the nation of Israel. It is amazing, yet true, that even after the twelve apostles had been preaching this gospel for some time, they still did not know about Christ's purpose to go to the cross and die for their sins. We know this is true because when Jesus began later to tell his apostles that he was going to Jerusalem to die, they did not believe him, nor did they understand what he was talking about. The reason they didn't understand was because they were preaching the good news about the kingdom. They expected Jesus Christ to establish Israel's kingdom and to take the throne as their king. See Matthew sixteen twenty-one and 22, Luke 1831 through 34 and Luke 19 11. Let's look at those. And why did they not understand what he was talking about? Because at that particular time, they had to come together as a group and pray for the Holy Spirit to come down upon them so they could understand. They don't have they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like believers do today to understand and comprehend what God is telling them. And the cross hadn't happened yet. And it's just like when God, Christ told them, he said, you will destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And it's a good thing Satan didn't understand that neither. Mm -hmm. Because that's what it was. The temple he was talking about was his body. Mm -hmm. Wasn't talking about the other temple. 
I can read Matthew. Would you please? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Okay, and then Luke 18:31-34. Then he took, then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished, for he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spiteful entreated and spit on and they shall scourge him and put him to death and the third day he will rise again and they understood none of these things and this saying was hid from them neither knew they the things which were spoken and yeah, right through there, okay. I gotta get out of that one and get a little light where I can read the numbers everywhere. Luke nineteen eleven says Now as they heard these things he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Eleven and twelve? Just eleven. Okay. And the thing of it is is the Jews were, they were, they were sticking to that prophecy. They were looking for their king to come and take his rightful place on, on the, in this, in the chair and uh, be the king over them. It's interesting because, I mean, we know that they didn't have the, you know, the spirit wasn't, they weren't you know, on them or whatever. They didn't, couldn't understand this, what he was saying, but yet he kept getting frustrated that they weren't understanding <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like he knew that they weren't understanding, but he's getting frustrated because they won't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he told them so many parables and just so many different ways that they just weren't getting it. He should have just flat out and told them, look. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think they would have believed. Probably. Yeah. Well, you're right. In that first passage that we read, in Matthew 16, mm-hmm. 21 and 22. He didn't believe. He said, no, that's, that's not going to happen to you. Right, right. Even when he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. No, yeah. that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's like, I think I know better. <laughs> and, you know, and that's where we're so blessed because we have the full scripture right. to look at and study. And they only had just a little part. But what they knew, they knew. But here's the thing that they had a problem with. And this goes to expound on that even more. Faith. Faith. They had the works down. They just didn't have the faith. Mm -hmm. They just didn't. Okay, reading on. How then could the twelve apostles have been preaching the same gospel as the Apostle Paul later preached when they did not know or understand anything about the cross at that time? Yet Paul says he preached, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-23, the cross and Christ crucified. The point is this. The gospel that the twelve apostles preached during the 
earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is not the same gospel the Apostle Paul was sent to preach later. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, the gospel Paul preached was the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Paul tells us where his gospel originated in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. It was after the resurrection and ascension that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to the Apostle Paul all that was accomplished on the cross. In fact, in Acts 20.24, Paul calls this message the gospel of the grace of God. In Galatians 2.1 and 2, we see that this gospel is intended for the Gentiles as well as Jews. And in Galatians 2.6-10, we find that the twelve apostles learned of this gospel from Paul. In this present age of grace, God has set Israel as a nation aside, and the kingdom promised them has been postponed until future time. Therefore, the gospel of the kingdom is not God's message of good news for today, but rather the good news for how the cross saves sinners of all nations, of all nationalities. This is God's message for today. This is why the first epistle or letter of Paul set forth in our Bible is the book of Romans. The book of Romans teaches precisely how God saves sinners. Therefore, the following is God's message of good news for you today. Therefore, the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. So everybody that's believing that the law saves have got it backwards. The law never did save. All the law did was make them know that they are sinners, they missed the mark, and they, need they are not righteous, no, not one of them. But now the righteousness of God with, without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. There's no difference of what? There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Right. They all have the same opportunity. All people, after the cross, had the same opportunity. That's like when you said back here when he referred to them as Gentiles and Jews of this age. It's kind of confusing because Jews can be saved. They just have to be saved under the gospel, the grace of God. I mean, well, well, Jews of this age would be the same as Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's confusing yeah. to separate them two because they're both the yeah. same. And that's why I stated... Right. Unsaved or saved. Because that's how right. God sees them. I was today. agreeing with you. That. It was confusing yeah. how you wrote it. Yeah. It is confusing the other way like that. Uh, let's see. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. What does propitiation mean? We're going to learn about it. We are going to learn about what does it mean. I want to know what you think of it, what it means now. To satisfy. He, Christ satisfied God's righteousness 
when he died on that cross and it gave us all the opportunity whoever believing that death, burial, and resurrection because at the same time that the Holy Spirit when we accept that the same time the Holy Spirit seals us into Christ or they say sometimes they say baptized into Christ but we're identified into Christ with the Holy Spirit at that same time God takes Christ's righteousness and credits our account at the very same time. So we have Christ's righteousness over us. And that's how he sees us today. And doesn't see the sin that we... You know, some people say, well, you still sin. You're still in, the, in, that, in this earthly body, that sin-cursed body. We're going to sin. Uh, but God doesn't see it that, that way. It's not that we should sin right it's just in, in god forbid god forbid you bet and uh, but anyway i just want to throw that out there that propitiation is a good word through faith whom god has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteous his righteousness for the remission of the sins that are past through the forbearance of god to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay. But by, <laughs> but by the law of faith. <laughs> Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans 5.10 for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 1.3 But of him are, we, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Romans 6.3 Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized or identified into Christ Jesus were baptized in or identified into his death. And then we get to the first definition. I don't know, I just, I'm really excited about this whole book. I've read mm -hmm. through quite a bit of it several times and it's just like, there's so much good information here. Righteousness, God's standard of perfection. You're going to quiz us on that next week, aren't you? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, what is righteousness? Righteousness. It's God's standard for perfection. And what is righteousness? And only God possesses it. Holiness. Oh, where is that? God only, oh, there it is. God, only, God is the only one that possesses holiness. And that is perfection. Okay, as you read, let's read the Deuteronomy 32, 4. Uh, 32.4 He is the rock His work is perfect For all his ways Are judgment A God of truth and without iniquity Just and right Is he Did you get that? Deuteronomy 32.4 What version were you reading? This is the King James Version Okay 
as you read God's commandments in Exodus 20, 1 through 20, and Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you will see that God's standard of right is absolute perfection. In Matthew, in fact, Matthew 5, 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Absolute perfect perfection is holiness, and only God possesses holiness. The Bible says God is holy. Isaiah 6, 3, and Isaiah 57, 15, but according to Isaiah 64, 6, this is the one I was telling you about earlier, man's righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Hmm. Hmm. Doesn't say a lot about our righteousness, does it? I was going to say, so it kind of, you know, knocks you down. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to please him. Yeah. There's only one way. Which is why it's not works-based. Yep. There's only one way to please him. As we turn our attention to the book of Romans, we find these same truths taught there in more detail. Romans 1.8 through 3.20 basically teaches two doctrines. Number one, God must judge and condemn the sinner because he, God, is holy and his justice justice demands it. Even, even in society, we can... We cannot let people get away with breaking the law. Mm -hmm. There must be justice. So is it with God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Also see Romans 2.12 and 6. The second doctrine taught in Romans 1.18-3.20 is, Every person is a sinner. Let's uh, go through and read some of these scripture verses. I think we should read Romans 1, 18 through 320. Well, I can start reading. Read go ahead. Yep. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Look, let's just stop right there for okay. now. But, I, I, you know, you read this, and you read it in Genesis 2, but you read it here in Romans. So how many people are without excuse that say there is not a God? None. None. I mean, it's, it's proof here. It's just telling us here, and I know in Genesis it tells you the same thing. With all what he has done on the earth, there's just no question that God is God. We'll end it with that this week. And uh, we'll pick up on...
We'll finish reading this next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for for your word that we're able to study and, and learn more about you. And thank you that we're able to meet together here. And, and I just pray, Lord, that as we move forward as a church and and hopefully get this building, that we, we don't take our focus off of you and, and see the, the good that this can be for honoring you. And, and uh, I just pray as we go our ways this week that we keep us safe and that we can meet again next week. In Jesus' name, amen.